Hey, I'm Chase from Iowa. I'm Alex from Chicago. I'm Jake from Downers Grove. Sound of Young America is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. I'm Jesse Thorne, live on tape from my house in Los Angeles. It's the Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest on the program is one of the most accomplished comics authors of the last 25 years or so, Dan Klaus. He's the author of, uh, among others, uh, David Boring and Ghost World, and uh, wrote for many years the comic Eight Ball. His newest uh, work is his first ever graphic novel written specifically for that form, it's called Wilson. Dan Klaus, welcome back to the Sound of Young America. Hello, sir. It's a pleasure to have you here. It's a pleasure to be here. So this came to me, right, with the with the pitch. This is Dan Klaus's uh, first ever work that w- wasn't serialized anywhere else, w- wasn't written to be in, you know, comic book form before right. it was bound into a big hardback, et cetera, et cetera. So when I opened it, I was surprised to note that the form is essentially uh is essentially 50 or 60 sort of sunday comics one page separate individual pieces right right it's some kind of a regression i guess <laughs> how did you fall into that shape you know it, it it came very naturally i mean i i had decided that i was I was done doing the serialized comics, you know, for years, that's, that was the, the format that we all looked to was to do the comics of our youth, or in my case, the comics of my teenage years, I was trying to do like a underground comic, like zap comics, the kind of things Robert Crumb did. And, you know, for years, that was that was my form of choice. And just in the last five to 10 years or so, the marketplace has changed so much that the idea of doing serialized comic books seems like this quaint, uh, old-fashioned notion. Um, it seems like an affectation at this point to do a comic <laughs> book. You know, it seems like I'm going to only release my record on on eight-track tape. <laughs> there doesn't seem any reason to do it anymore. And I was so clinging to that format for so many years that it was very traumatic to finally decide I'm just going to do a book at this point. Did you start this story because it is a it is a very narrative book, although the narrative is um, broken up in an interesting way. Did you start this story with an idea of uh, the story in mind, or did you start it in the way that you would have started it if it were a, a Sunday comic, just as a sort of series of uh, uh, narrative sketches based around a character? Well, the the genesis of this actually was that. Um my father was in the hospital, much the way Wilson, the character in the book's father, is in the hospital. And and uh, as I was sitting there next to him, as he was sort of you know checking out from life, I was uh, I was reading um, the biography of Charles Schultz that David Michaelis wrote a few years ago, and I was really sort of connecting Charles Schultz to my father. They were very similar. They both had like you know gray crew cuts and were kind of these Midwestern soft spoken. Um, you know, smart men. And and, uh, so I was really connecting to this book, and there was a part in the book 
uh, just a quote from Schultz where he says, um, says, you know, the difference between an amateur and a professional is that a professional can sit down in 15 minutes and come up with a perfectly good gag strip for their next day's paper. And I thought, gosh, I can't do that. You know, I'm not a cartoonist. <laughs> and I just thought like Schultz would think I was such a schmuck that I'm spending like a week writing a comic, you know, a comic page. And so I thought I'm going to do that. As I sit here in the hospital watching my father, you know, fade away, I'm going to sit with my little sketchbook and draw some funny gag strips to sort of, you know, keep my brain occupied. And so that was really where it all began. And I, the, the character who didn't have a name at that point just kind of emerged out of my pencil without a, a second's thought. I just, I just created this kind of obnoxious id creature who was voicing my my own least popular opinions about people in the airport. You know, I'd just flown in to Chicago, so I'd had all these experiences in the airport. So I was just writing about the most prosaic little events of the day, and the next thing I knew, I had done hundreds of these things. They were just little stick figure doodles with word, word balloons. And then all of a sudden I realized I knew this character, and this character had come to life, and he was he now existed, and I had to do something with him. And he kind of took over my life in a way that, you know, that you only hope will happen every so often with a character. And, and, uh, and I, the story developed very naturally from that point on, but it, it did not really exist in any of those original sketches. It, it was, it kind of came after I knew who the guy was. You know, I was reading a bunch of reviews of the book, all, all of which were completely effusive, I should say. Um, and you know, I, there were, there were a lot of curb your enthusiasm comparisons. And I thought that was interesting because, um, you know, I, I, I love curb your enthusiasm as much or more than the next guy. Me too. Um, Larry David as a character on that show, um, he has his sort of, his sort of central principle isn't so much that he creates awkward situations as it is that he has kind of an overdeveloped ethos like he has a position that he believes in with his heart right. on everything right um a, a whole st- a, just a complicated system of beliefs that he is unwilling to leave behind in any situation and so you know when he goes into a situation where he would have to compromise his beliefs he sort of falls on his face right um I feel like that's different from what the way that Wilson is continually causing complicated situations. It seems like he um he almost has a sort of goodwill that he's entering situations into that sort of conflicts with the fact that also he's a jerk. Yeah. I mean, Larry David is playing a very the character on the show is playing a a small game. You know, he just he really wants to um you know, just play golf or do, you know, he wants to do things that are sort of easy and simple and just get through life kind of having fun with his own personality and not, he's not, he's not looking to do something. He's not, uh, you know, he's not seething with this need to connect. And Wilson is, you know, Wilson's playing, I think of him as playing kind of a larger game than everybody else around, around him. He's trying to make these kind of monumental human connections in a way that's that he's he's not even equipped to make the most minor human connection and it's you know there's this huge gulf between those two and also Larry David has a he has kind of a superpower on his show he's you know he's a multi-billionaire and is able to 
use that to sort of get around any situation, which I, I find that very funny that he's sort of upfront with that because that could be a very off-putting quality <laughs> on a television show. Where, whereas Wilson is clearly has nothing. He has no hold over anybody in any way. He's, he's really kind of, you know, living by his wits such as they are to just, you know, eke out the most uh, futile existence <laughs> imaginable. It's funny that you say that that you point out that kind of scale of the game that they're playing because you're right. I mean, I think if I think if I were to think of a definitive Larry David moment on Curb Your Enthusiasm, it's when he decides everything is coming up Larry and he goes into the Starbucks and orders what I guess well I'm quoting so we'll have to bleep this, but he orders a vanilla bullshit. Right. And that is his greatest triumph, right, that right. he orders that and it is served to him. Right. It's so great that he decides <laughs> to order one for everyone right. in the entire place because everything is coming up right. him. Um, whereas, uh, you know, Wilson's, the, the great triumph that Wilson hopes for is, you know, basically finding some kind of peace. Yeah, and he, I mean, he really wants to have a family that, you know, the kind of family that he obviously set up his life earlier to not have you know he obviously made all these terrible decisions throughout his life and now at you know 45 or 50 or however old he is he uh he realizes that and he's trying to sort of force the issue as in this desperate implausible way and he's you know he's really looking for for some big things and and you know i mean to me the beauty of of the curb your enthusiasm is that it is all it's about this guy who could do anything and you know, I love that he was not interested at all in doing, you know, like the Seinfeld reunion. And, you know, that was just, there was no, you know, he he's much more interested in, in some little thing like the Starbucks thing. And I think that's that's what's great about that. But Wilson's kind of the opposite. Production of The Sound of Young America is underwritten in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com. It's the sound of young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is one of the world's most acclaimed comics artists, Dan Klaus. He's written graphic novels like Ghost World and Art School Confidential. His latest is called Wilson. You mentioned that when you started drawing this, you were um, sitting next to your dad in the hospital um, as he was mortally ill. Yeah. Um, there's a there's a scene that's very reflective of that in in this book where where Wilson is sitting next to his dad as he uh, dies in the hospital. Um, was there something that you wanted out of that in the way that there's something that that Wilson wants out of that? So was there some interaction or or it, you know it, it, the moments in the hospital were it, it wasn't so much about those but it was about my lifelong kind of preconception of how that would be you know I always imagined one day my dad will be on his last legs and I'll be there in the hospital and I always imagined my dad was a very uh I wouldn't say unemotional guy but he was not he was not someone who expressed his emotions very carefully although I uh, comfortably although I knew very very clearly that he was you know he was very fond of me and he was he was a very good dad but he never he was not the kind of dad who, you know, gave advice or or you know said I really want you to know this about 
you know, about me or about how I feel about you or anything like that. And I always thought, I wonder if like when all defenses are down and when it's, you know, at that last moment, if that will, if he will do that. And then I immediately realized as I was in the hospital that that is utterly against his nature and that was not going to happen. And so I was sort of at peace with that idea, but I had had a lifetime of imagining, you know, what, what he might say under, if all his defenses were down and he was, you know, on some kind of drug that would make him speak freely about his emotions. I had always been curious. And so it was, you know, I was sort of playing off of that idea with Wilson, you know, of, of if I had actually been really um, desperate to hear what, what that was that he had to say. One of the interesting things to me about the structure is that um, it's so much about what happens in between, which I guess, you know, is a sort of a central element of comics as a form, right? That they that something happens between the static pictures that you're looking at. Yeah, I mean, it certainly it happens between the panels. That's where that's where the action is actually taking place. You know, you're not seeing anybody actually move They're You know, they're in one place and then they're in another. Um but I, I love the idea of taking that, uh, of exploring that area in between the strips. You know, if, I noticed when I was reading all these Peanut strips in sequence, it had sort of a narrative to it. You know, it would be, it's it's Christmas, and then they go through Christmas, and then he runs out of jokes for that, and then it's Valentine's Day, and then it's spring, and they play baseball. And it almost seems like this, almost a, a more truthful narrative than an actual imposed narrative. It's the narrative of life and it goes on and on. And, um, and, and so I felt like there was something to that. And I, I also felt like it was a great, great way to kind of eliminate all the boring parts of a story. You know, it's, <laughs> I found I could just cut out all exposition if that was needed and just, you have to imagine how he got from one strip to the next. And some of them are, you know, five years apart. I feel like though that you don't, exclusively i mean it's it's not a matter of just showing the high parts like i don't feel no no not at all not at all it's 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 a matter of showing the mo- the the best moment the moments that have the best resonance you know the most charged moments but many of them are two or three in a row in sequence in the same you know 20 minutes and then the next one will be four years later and it's that to me, that sort of is. I feel like that replicates the way we remember our lives a little bit. You know, we think of three things that happened one day in 1984, and then we don't remember anything till 1987. And you know, it just it it had that feeling of of uh, the, replicating the the way memory works. And in and I, I found to me the interesting thing with the story was I, as I said, I drew all these strips in the beginning, and I had hundreds and hundreds of pages of ideas for this guy and they all kind of would have fit in the book but I I found that I needed to cut it down to the absolute minimum and the more I cut the better the book became until it got down to almost the the absolute minimum there were two or three at the end I thought about cutting and I took them out and they they needed to go back again and I realized that was sort of the perfect length the story takes place over uh quite a long period of time um and you know right from the start it's it's kind of fueled by that realization that there needs to be some kind of adjustment when you're 42 and right. you've you know built built a walled garden around yourself um i wonder how coming to that part of your life has affected what you want to create what's important enough 
to you to create. And also, especially, I should say, in light of the fact that um, when you create comics, you know, and you involve yourself in something like this, it it takes years. So you're really committing a huge amount of your time towards what you decide to create about. Yeah, yeah. You can't... Uh, everybody thinks comics can just be you know, drawn over a weekend, really, you know, they think you just scribble it out and then, you know, it's an immediate form and it's sort of the opposite. I mean, film is actually even much more immediate. You know, you shoot a film in in a month and it's inconceivable to do that with a comic. But, um, yeah, I mean, a few years before, before I began this, I had, uh, I had open heart surgery and I was really, it was not looking good. And I really thought, this might be it. And I was sort of, and I was very aware that if I had been alive even 20 years earlier, I was dead. I would be dead by 47 or 48. And I I felt like that was, that was sort of, you know, the intent for me at birth. You know, that was the clock was ticking and I had 48 years and that it was about up. And, and, uh, facing that made me kind of think about what was really important to me. And I, I had to think about, you know, what do I really believe and what is, what what are beliefs that are that are amusing to express to to sound interesting to other people and what what do you really think about things and what do you really believe and I I, I think I got a lot out of that experience and I think I I think I really you know understood who I was much better after that and so I think that was sort of my big you know midlife moment <laughs> the whole nine yards exactly um I. I wonder because, um, you know, I think probably one of the reasons that so many comic books are about social alienation is that the uh, the form is both appealing to the socially alienated and socially alienating in and of itself because it essentially involves you kind of locking yourself up somewhere and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas um, making film, and even when you're doing one of the, you know, the kind of more... Auteurish parts of making a film, which is writing, it's still like this incredibly collaborative thing. You know, like you've Very you're different. you know you're often interpreting something. You've got you're working for some, but you're working for potentially for a director and probably almost certainly for a producer when you're writing. And you know, there's all this different stuff going on um, in this sort of relatively new place in your life. Is it important for you to do? one or the other is it important for you to do this thing where you have perfect control of the whole world or is it important for you to do this thing where you're working with all these different people well you know i i mean i do love the the act of working on comics i mean i just i love doing it i love every part of it i like buying the paper at the art store and cutting out the paper and all just all the the little tasks you know it has this sort of old world feel of of making something with your hands, you know, and it's very, I, I don't use computer except for the very final stages. And it's all just cutting out paper and drawing with a pen and a brush and a pencil. And, uh, it's very, very satisfying and to, you know, to go to bed at night, finishing up something and to wake up in the morning and sort of seeing it with fresh eyes. That's a, that's an endlessly wonderful feeling. And, and I do love doing that, but you, you tend, you, you know, you're working in a room there, um, you know, I'm listening to you guys all day. I'm listening to talk radio all day. And that's sort of my connection to the outside world. And you, you start to feel like you're in solitary confinement, you know, and I have a wife and a son and a, 
lots of friends and, and, you know, I, I get out as much as I can, but when you're really working it, you are spending eight to 10 hours a day in this monastic existence in this room. And it, it, I, you see most cartoonists that you meet in their fifties and sixties tend to seem like they're kind of losing their mind. You know, they're, they're, you know, you can just imagine them talking to themselves or probably swearing to themselves that, you know, that they're awful lot in life and they're, they tend to be very bitter and paranoid. And I felt at a certain stage when I was in my early forties, like I've got to, I've got to do something else with part of my time because I do not want to wind up like that. And so I always was interested in movies. So working in, in movies is kind of the perfect thing. Cause it, as you say, you're dealing, even you're writing a screenplay, you, you know, you're sending people pages and talking on the phone and it's, you have to shift into this utterly different mode than you have when you're doing comics. I have to admit that as a guy, you know, I, I would guess that there are relatively few talk radio hosts who are in a similar situation. <laughs> right. But I have right. to say I count myself as one of them. And one of the th- one of the really lovely things about uh, Wilson in, in your book is he has this relationship with his dog. And um, I was like, gosh, you know, like I, I got a dog and, you know, I have this relationship with my dog where I want to like talk to my dog and, you know, just personify my dog in every yeah. way, basically because outside of my intern who comes in two days a week, like that's all I got, you know. Yeah, that's my <laughs> my dog is my companion all day. I mean, I see my dog more than anybody, and uh, and I I do talk to my dog quite a bit. <laughs> my dog seems very uh, has a quality about her that seems like she on some level knows all the answers. You know, it's like she's got it figured out. She's very she's got a very happy life, and I find myself saying, you know. Dear God, Ella, help me. You know, what am I going to do? <laughs> I feel like she, you know, one day she'll she'll say something. It's it's sort of like, um, I mean, in a funny way, that kind of way that a dog seems to have everything uh, figured out is uh, is not that far from that sort of being able to sit on the um, uh, the berm or whatever that's called and look at the ocean and just be like, wow, there's the ocean. I like the in the infiniteness of it rather right. than like me personally, every time I look at the ocean, I, I curse its power over me. <laughs> right. I feel insignificant. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, I think, I mean, I think that's what Wilson gets out of his, his dog is, is that, you know, I think he admires that. And the, there's a strip in the book where it's, he does a, a eulogy for his dog after she dies. And that, that was, it, it reads as though I'm being somewhat, sarcastic but i think it was absolutely sincere in every way and i i felt that very strongly even though my dog is still with me i I worry about her so much that i those kind of thoughts go through my mind well dan klaus thank you so much for taking all this time to be on the san diego america it was great to have you on the show thank you so much dan klaus's latest in a series of critically acclaimed works is the graphic novel wilson That's our time for another Sound of Young America program. I have been your host, Jesse Thorne, America's radio sweetheart. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our music provided to us by Dan Wally. The show edited by Nick White. Our associate producer is Julia Smith. And our intern is Christian Natividad. You can find us online at MaximumFun.org, where you can download any of our past programs, absolutely 100% for free, or share something that you've heard today with a friend. We'll see you next week right here on The Sound of Young America.